0: Good morning. morning. My name is Mark. I'm one of the pastors on staff here at Calvary, and it's an honor to be able to open God's word together and to worship together this morning. We're continuing in this series, Unsung Heroes, where we're looking at lesser known figures in the Bible and seeing their example in faith, and also learning things about character traits of God that we can trust. And we're looking at a figure this morning, Gideon, and Gideon's a story that some of you may have heard before, or perhaps some of you haven't, but my hope is that this morning that you would be able to learn something new as we open up this story. We're going to be predominantly in Judges six to eight, which is in the Old Testament. Uh, and so, if you have a Bible or grab the seat uh, Bible in the seat in front of you, I'd encourage you to open it up because not all the text is going to be on the screen um, as we go through this story. But we'll be going through a decent amount of it, and I'll let you know some of the verses as we go along. So, Judges six to eight, and I'll give you a moment to open there. It's near the beginning of the Bible. We can probably all resonate with the question, why is this happening? Why is this happening right now? Why am I going through this pain right now, through this grief, through this loss, through this hardship? Why are we as a nation going through these challenges? Why are we as a world going through these issues? Why is this happening? Another question you could ask is, God, where are you in the midst of this? Do you see what's happening? Do you see the pain? Do you see the grief? Do you see the suffering? Do you see me right now in the middle of what I'm going through? Two questions, why is this happening and where is God? And it's really with those two questions that we're gonna begin our story today with the story of Gideon where he's in the midst of a crisis, and he's asking God, where are you? And why is all of this happening? We begin in Judges 6.1, which sets the scene for this story of Gideon. And Judges 6.1 begins this way. It says, "...the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years." Now there's a general cycle that goes throughout the book of Judges, and just to catch you up to speed on what's happening in Judges, is that the people of Israel were once slaves in a land called Egypt. But then God brings them out, he frees them, and he puts them in the land. But as they're in the land, and they're supposed to be God's people and to worship him, there's this general cycle that occurs, and that's that they begin to look around to the nations around them, they see their gods, and they begin to worship them. And so God will raise up the enemy who's going to come and oppress them to discipline them, to turn their heart back towards God. They'll cry out for help, and God will send a judge, a ruler, a deliverer who will free them from the oppression of their enemy and once again establish them in the land. But this is a cycle that's kind of like a bad song on repeat as someone keeps turning up the volume, because it keeps happening over and over again. The people keep forgetting about God, keep worshiping the gods of the nations around them, and the cycle changes. Sometimes they don't even call out to God for help. He just sends them a deliverer. But we're in one of those cycles now, and the people have once again forgotten God. And they've been overtaken now for seven years by their enemy, Midian. And this enemy is described as this powerful enemy. They're like locust in number and in abundance, and their camel are like the sand on the seashore. You can't count them. So this massive horde, this enemy who's coming into their territory, camping out against them, and taking their livestock and their food and leaving them completely desolate. So Midian has been doing this now for seven years, oppressing the people of Israel, and they cry out to God for help. And our story begins today with our figure Gideon. And the angel of the Lord, who's often identified with Yahweh, God himself, is going to appear to our figure Gideon, while Gideon is in a place of hiding. So Judges 6, says this, that Gideon's beating out wheat in a wine press to hide it from the Midianites. This is where the angel of the Lord appears to Gideon. Now, you may not know a lot about the ancient Near East in culture, but you could probably guess what a wine press is used for. Used for pressing wine, from making wine out of grapes. Yet Gideon's doing something kind of odd here in verse 11. He's beating out wheat in a wine press. Normally the place that you would beat out wheat is on a threshing floor, this open space where you would go and you would process the wheat. But here, he's, in some, he's somewhere else. He's in a wine press, which would have likely been hewed out from a rock. And so what is Gideon doing here? He's hiding The story begins with Gideon in hiding and the angel of the Lord appearing to him because he's likely afraid for his own life and losing his meal. So the angel of the Lord says to him in verse 12, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon responds, please my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. Do you hear those questions? If the Lord is with us, why has this happened? Where are all your wonderful deeds? You saved your people out of slavery in Egypt, and now Our enemy is oppressing and overtaking us. Where are you? Where are all your great deeds and why are we here? And so the Lord commissions Gideon in verse 14 and says, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Did I not send you? But Gideon, receiving this commission, says, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house." But God promises in verse 16, but I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. The Lord is commissioning, sending out Gideon. You're going to be the one who's going to be used to save the people of Israel. But Gideon wants a sign from the Lord, a sign to know that it's really the angel of the Lord that's speaking with him. And so Gideon goes and he prepares a sacrifice, and he puts it on a rock. And the angel of the Lord reaches out the tip of his staff and touches this offering And it's consumed with fire. And so Gideon, then, after seeing the sign that it's the angel of the Lord, we're told in verse 22, it says that he perceives it's the angel of the Lord, and he says, Alas, Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. And he's assured from the angel of the Lord, peace be to you, do not fear, you shall not die. So Gideon has just seen this great thing. He has seen and talked to the angel of the Lord. He's been commissioned to go and to free the people of Israel from their enemies. And he has seen the angel of the Lord face to face. And so he's told, now is time to begin to deal with the issue. But before dealing with their enemies, Gideon's going to have to deal with the problem in their own homeland. Because they've begun to worship these other gods. This is the root of the problem. They've begun to worship these other gods. And so this is what God tells to Gideon. This is what you should do. The people have begun to worship Baal and Asherah, these two foreign gods. And so here's what I want you to do. Go to the place where they're being worshiped. And I want you to pull down the altar of Baal and cut down the Asherah pole. Then burn the wood of the Asherah pole. And in that place, offer a sacrifice to me. And so we're told that Gideon does this. He goes and he pulls down the altar of Baal. He cuts down the Asherah pole and he burns the sacrifice to the Lord. He takes some of his men, his servants to do this. But we're also told in verse 27 that he does this at night because he's afraid of his family and of the men of the town. And his own dad, Joash, was actually involved in this sort of idol worship. Now the next morning when people wake up, they see that the altar of Baal has been torn down. They see that the Asherah pole has been cut down, and they see that the sacrifice has been given to Yahweh. And so the people begin to say, who has done this? Who's done this? Who offered this sacrifice? Who tore down the altar of Baal? And the word gets out that it was Gideon. And so they say, this is what we're going to do. We're going to put Gideon to death because of what he's done. But Gideon's dad, Joash, who was formerly involved in this sort of idol worship, comes to his defense, and he essentially says this, look, if Baal's a god, he'll defend himself. Right? He's a god, he doesn't need you to defend him, so let Baal contend against Gideon. Let him do his own dirty work. He'll take care of it if he's a god. Defending his son, Gideon. And this is where Gideon gets his nickname, or his other name, which is Jerubbabel. Jerubbabel, let Baal Contend against him is what that means. So let Baal contend against him becomes his nickname or other name of Jerubbabel. And now after dealing with the idolatry in their own land, it's time to begin to deal with their enemy. And their enemy had come, in the people of the east, the Amalekites, the Midianites, were told that they've camped out. They've crossed the Jordan. They've entered into the land, and they've camped out. And So Gideon begins to gather his armies, But before he goes into battle, he wants another sign that God's really with him, that God's going to give him victory. And so this is the sign that Gideon asked for. He's seen one sign, but he he wants another. He says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to lay a fleece of wool on a threshing floor where you'd process the wheat. And if I wake up in the morning and that fleece is wet and the ground's dry, then I'll know that you're really going to use me to save Israel. Israel. And so the next morning, he wakes up, and sure enough, the fleece is soaking wet. He wrings out the water into a bowl, and the ground's dry. But then, in Judges 639, Gideon says, Let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak just once more. Please let me test just once more with the fleece. Please let it be dry on the fleece only, and on all the ground let there be dew. He's saying, okay, I just saw that sign, but can we flip it this time? Let's make a dry fleece and then a wet ground. Then I'll know that you're really with me. And once again, God does it. He wakes up the next morning, the fleece is dry, the ground is wet. So Gideon and his men are prepared. The camp, their enemy is to the north of them, they're to the south, their enemy is below them in a valley. But before they go into battle, God says there's an issue, Gideon, your army's too big. Judges 7.2, the Lord says this to Gideon, he says, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me saying, my own hand has saved me. Your army is too big. I know that they'll want the credit of the victory for themselves. And so he says, whoever's afraid, let them go home. And this army of Israel, which is 32,000, is all of a sudden trimmed down to just 10,000. As 22,000 men say, I'm afraid, I'll go home. So this army is 10,000. But then in verse 4, the Lord says, the people are still too many. Still too many. I know that they would get the credit and the victory. They, They would think it belonged to them. So once again they trim down the army. This time, it's based on the way that they drink. Those who drink water, they go down to the spring, and those who drink water like a dog, picking it up and lapping it up, they're to be kept. But everyone who kneels down to drink the water, they're to be sent home. And of those who drink the water, lapping it up like a dog, there's 300 men. And it's with these 300 men that they're then to go into battle against their great enemy. Now, it's the night before the battle, Gideon must have been preparing and getting ready, and the Lord appears to him and says this. He says, Arise, go down to the camp, for I've given it into your hand. This is verse 9. He says, I've, I've given you victory, Gideon. But he tells him that something then. Victory is yours. You're going to have this victory, but if you are afraid to go down, if you're afraid Go down to the camp with Pur, your servant. And God offers for him that he can go down into the camp and that he'll hear something while he's in his enemy's camp that will encourage him to go into battle the next day. And so Gideon takes God up on this offer and he takes down his servant. And while he's in the camp, he hears one of his enemies telling another one of his enemies a story. He says, I had this dream. And the dream is that there was this cake of barley that was rolling through our camp and it came and it smashed a tent and turned it upside down and flattened it. And his comrade, when he hears this, the enemy comrade, in verse 14 says, this is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. So Gideon, hearing his own enemy proclaim his victory, we're told in verse 15 that he worships. And he goes And he gathers the men. He says, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. He prepares them, and he stations them in three groups of a hundred around the enemy camp. This is the tactic they're going to use. They surround the enemy camp. They have trumpets in one hand, and they have empty jars with torches inside in the other hand. And Gideon tells them what they're going to do they're going to follow his lead. So Gideon and his men are the first, and they blow their trumpets and they break their jars. Then all three troops of 100 men, they blow their trumpets, break their jars, and they shout out, a sword for the Lord and a sword for Gideon. And their enemy just loses it. We're told that they turn on each other with their own swords and begin to defeat each other. There's mass chaos and confusion in the camp, and their enemy begins to slaughter themselves. And then they track down, and the story goes on as they defeat the princes of Midian and track down and eventually defeat the kings of Midian. And so this is the story of Gideon and God giving victory to Israel through Gideon and the 300 men. So the question we want to ask as we look at this story is, what do we learn from this? What what do we take away from a story like this? One thing that we can see in this story is that it it took faith for Gideon to go into this battle. I mean, think about the faith that it would have taken for Gideon in this time of crisis, He's in a place of fear and uncertainty and hiding, and God approaches him with a mission to to reform the land, to free them from their enemy. And so he takes faith for him to tear down the altar of Baal and cut down the Asherah pole. It takes him faith to go and defeat this army, this massive army with just 300 men. We're told that this army was like locusts in abundance. Their are camels like the sand on the seashore. And according to Judges 8.10, the army would have likely been about 135,000 and so 135,000 enemies versus 32,000 israelites that's a 1 to 4 ratio the israelites being outnumbered 4 to 1 but what does god tell gideon in judges 7:2 he says the people with you are too many Judges 7, 2, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boasts over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. God wants it to make it abundantly clear: this victory is not going to belong to Gideon and his men, but to God himself. Now, if you are Gideon, you might want to say, wait a second, God, let's do the math. The people with me are too many. We're outnumbered four to one. Isn't it more accurate to say that the people with them are too many? Why don't you trim down their number or give us some more? Because then that would be a fair fight. But he says, the people with you are too many. And so he whittles down the army to just 10,000 men. Now, at this point, the ratio is 13 to 1. Every Israelite is outnumbered 13 to 1 as they go into battle. But the Lord still at that point says, the people are still too many. So he whittles it down again now just to and fi- just to 300 men so that the ratio of Israelites to the enemy would be 450 enemies to every single Israelite with the point being that it's abundantly clear that God is the one who gets the victory. It's not because these 300 men were strapping and strong and the best of the best. They were so mighty in battle but ultimately the purpose is to show that the power belongs not to them, but to their God. And even the way they accomplish their victory, they blow trumpets, they break jars, and they shout. And their enemy just loses it. It's very clear that God is at work in this battle, and that God's the one who's gonna get the victory. But you could also imagine how much faith would it have taken for Gideon and his men to go into this battle, outnumbered 450 to one going into this battle, it would have taken trust in God when the odds were stacked against them. In this time of crisis, in this time of uncertainty, in this time of fear, to, t- to trust God. And so what we see here is an example of what faith looks like in a time of crisis. And, and we encounter this in our own lives. We, we look at our own world right now. There's crisis left and right. You can look at, on just a global level, we look at war, a pandemic, and economic instability and global challenges. On a local level, we've seen violence and hardship and difficulty, and just in our own lives, we're struggling with various challenges in our families, in our personal lives, mental health, all sorts of challenges and crises are before us. We'll have no shortage of them in our lives. And in the midst of those times, it's, it's possible that we begin to wonder, God, where are you? Where are you? Like, we've, we've heard about how you're this great savior, this great God who once saved your people out of slavery in Egypt. We've heard about Jesus Christ who raised the dead and healed the sick. And he dealt with the outcast and the poor. And he came and was near to them. But at times we might say, God, where are you? I, I don't understand what you're doing here. Are you present? Do you care in the midst of these challenges? And what we have before us today as we look at this story is an example of what faith looks like. Even with these seemingly impossible 450 to one odds, because sometimes that's the way that life for us feels, is 450 to one. Is God's word really gonna come true? Is it really gonna hold true in the midst of what we're going through? Is it worth believing him? So the first thing that we learn as we look at this story is that we see an example of faith. So the first thing we learn is that we should be like Gideon. He was someone who trusted God in his own time, in a time of crisis, and stepped forward in faith. In the same way that God used Gideon, he uses his people all throughout history who trust him for his great purposes. So the first thing we learn from the story is that we should be like Gideon. And that leads us naturally to the second thing that we learn from the story, which is that we should not be like Gideon. <laughs> if you look at the story, I intentionally left some details out, but if you look at the story, Gideon is by no means a perfect character. He's used by God Absolutely. But he is not a perfect character. Actually, throughout the story, he's someone who's characterized by doubt, and fear, and uncertainty. He's so conflicted in many ways. Just think about the ways that he asked for a sign from the Lord three times. He, he asked for three signs from the Lord. The first one's the angel of the Lord. He wants to know it's really the angel of the Lord speaking with him. And he's shown the sign as his sacrifice is consumed. It's this is great moment. But then when he's called to obey God, and tear down the altar of Baal, he obeys God in the dark. He obeys God at night because he's too afraid of his family and the people of the town. He doesn't want to do it openly. Then Gideon asks for the two signs with the fleece, signs two and three. He asks for the fleece to be wet. And then after that, he says, okay, the, the fleece is wet with dew, but now I want to flip it. This time, let's have the ground be wet with dew and the fleece dry. Now, you might be wondering as you hear this story, what's going on with the fleece of wool and the dew? What's, what's going on here? Now, something really important to remember. Gideon's nickname is Jerubbabel. His other name is jerubbabel because they said, let Baal contend against him. He's contended against Baal. He's torn down the altar of Baal and gone against Baal And now they say, okay, let Baal deal with him, Jerubbabel. And something important to know about Baal was that Baal was seen as this mighty warrior god. And he was also known as the god who controlled the rain and the dew. Even one of his own daughters, according to history, was named Dew. And so think about what's happening in this moment. When Gideon's saying, can you control the dew? What he's really saying is, can you show me that you're more powerful than Baal? Because they just gave me a name and they said, Baal's gonna contend against me. Let Baal contend against him. And I wanna know what's gonna happen if he does. Are you gonna be there? Are you gonna get me through? Are you going to leave me in the midst of this? Or will you be faithful? Can you show me that you have the power to save me? Because I'm uncertain. I'm afraid, I'm doubtful. So we see Gideon in this place of fear and uncertainty, needing assurance. But not only in the story does Gideon struggle with fear and doubt, he also leaves a really poor legacy. After Gideon defeats his enemies and there's this great victory, the people come and they say, Gideon, we want you and your offspring to rule over us. We want you to be our ruler, our king, In Judges 8.23, we see Gideon's response. He says this. I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. Now, on the surface, Gideon just nailed it. He passed the test. This is the right answer. It's not Gideon's job to make himself ruler, to make himself king. God is the one who appoints the king. Good job, Gideon. Except... At the same time, while Gideon says, I'm not gonna be your ruler, I'm not gonna be your king, he goes on to do some of the things that kings are explicitly told not to do, and the things you might expect a bad king to do. Even as Deuteronomy 17, it lays out the stipulations of what a king should not do. Gideon violates a couple of those, particularly, that we'll look at. Two things you're told not to do in Deuteronomy 17. Don't get a bunch of wives, don't get a bunch of gold. Two big no-nos for kings, and Gideon does them both. He acquires for himself a bunch of wives and a bunch of gold. We're told that Gideon takes the gold, the spoils of this battle, and he makes a golden ephod, which would have been a garment worn by a priest. And Judges 8.27 tells us this, that he puts it in his home city, and then in his home city we're told that all Israel hoard after it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. Think about this, this is Jerubbabel, the one who contended against Baal and idol worship. Building an idol that the people begin to worship that leads him and his own family into ruin, and his own nation. He's going back into the ways of his father. And after Gideon's victory, there's, there's 40 years of peace. But we're told in Judges 8.33 that as soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and hoard after the Baals and made Baal bereath their god. So just like that, his legacy is gone. He dies, the people return to their old ways, and he's unable to bring them lasting peace. And then just to top it off, if that wasn't enough, he names one of his sons Abimelech. And this is one of his sons who he has through a concubine. He names him Abimelech. Now, Remember, he said, I'm not going to rule over you. I'm not going to be your king, and my children won't be your king. But then Abimelech means my father is king. Maybe a sign that he didn't do so great in resisting the power. And after Gideon dies, the story with Abimelech is just a total train wreck. Because Abimelech says, I'm going to make myself king. And so he goes and he kills the 70 sons of Gideon. One escapes, Jotham, and he makes his own plight for kingship, which ends in his own death and ruin. And so if you want to do a Bible study on generational leadership, (laughs) I don't recommend Gideon as your positive example. Because the truth is, Gideon's in the big picture of this story, he's really not the hero. Leads us in kind of an odd spot because Gideon's not the hero of this story. In many ways, he leads the people into failure after his success. So then, who is the hero of this story? I think the answer is clear as you look at it, that the hero of this story is God. Is that not the reason why God says, we're going to take an army of 32,000 and whittle it down to 300 to show that the salvation is not theirs, but it's mine, that I am the one who saves my people? Now, at the same time, there are positive aspects to Gideon's faith. He really does live out faith in his time, and God uses him to deliver the people for a time. And so I think you could think about it like this. Gideon, I think you could say, is a hero in this story, but he's, he's the little h hero, the lowercase hero. But here, God is going to be the all-caps, bold-faced hero, the ultimate hero of this story. And this is the way it is all throughout Scripture, the ultimate hero of the Bible is God himself and his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus who doesn't just bring peace to the land for 40 years like Gideon, but Jesus, the son of God who brings eternal, lasting peace to his people, who lives today to lead his people. The great hero of all of scripture is always God and his son, Jesus Christ. And even Gideon's failure as a leader prepares us the great hope that we have in our ultimate savior, Jesus Christ. But here's an incredible thing. that Even though Gideon is this flawed character, he is used by God and truly used by God. And God being the great hero is not a threat to the idea that Gideon could be used, but actually the reason Gideon can be used in this story is because our great God and hero is able to use simple ordinary, flawed people like you and me and like Gideon who lived out faith in his day, not as a perfect character, but who trusted God in his time. And God, the great hero, is able to equip his people to do the work. And so we learn in this story that on one hand, we should be like Gideon, imitate his faith. On the other hand, we shouldn't be like Gideon because as much we do not want to model our lives after in his own life, But at the end of the day, and this is our final point, is that we are like Gideon. We are simple, ordinary, flawed people who through faith in God are able to be used for extraordinary things. Because God is able to use his people. I mean, Gideon was flawed. Gideon was flawed, but we all are. And Gideon struggled with doubt. But what follower of Jesus has never struggled with doubt? We wouldn't trust someone if they said they've never struggled with doubt. But what I want to focus on to end our time is not just the fact that Gideon struggled with doubt, but I want to look at how does God deal with a doubting Gideon? How does God deal with Gideon in the midst of his doubt? Because here's something incredible. Gideon asked for three signs from the Lord, three times to know that the Lord is really with him, that he's really going to use him. And how many signs does the Lord give him? It's kind of a trick question because I think there's actually four. I think there's four signs that the Lord gives to Gideon. So the three signs that were given with the sacrifice and the fleece twice, that gives us the three. But then the fourth sign is this. Judges 7, 9 through 11. It's the night before the battle. It's the night before the battle. And God knows Gideon struggles with doubt and uncertainty. He's got the big day before him. Judges 7, 9 says this. The Lord says to him, Arise, go down to the camp, for I have given it into your hand. Victory is yours, Gideon. It's yours. You have the victory. You go down, and it's all yours. But verse 10, But if you are afraid, but if you are afraid, I know you, Gideon. I know you struggle with doubt. I know that you're uncertain. I know that you're fearful. I know that you're anxious. If you are afraid, he offers for him to go down to the camp with his servant. So that when he's in the camp, not only is the victory given to him, but when he goes down in the camp that night, he'll be given the strength to actually walk into battle the next day. God is so gracious to Gideon in this moment, knowing his weakness, knowing his frame, knowing his inability, even to have the strength he needs in himself. He says, not only will I give you the victory, I will strengthen you to walk forward with your weak faith. I will strengthen your weak Faith. God is like a father kneeling down, condescending to his son to pick him up in this moment. So, a question I want us to think about then is how do we think God deals with us and our weaknesses? Is he just at the end of his rope saying, Man, I've, I've told you? Maybe, maybe what we particularly struggle with is doubt. I've told you three times. I've written in the word. Why don't you just believe? Why don't you get these things figured out? Or is God's heart, like it is towards Gideon in this story, willing to strengthen his people in our time of need? That we can actually even approach him with our doubt and uncertainty and find strength. We see another story in the Bible that has some similarities, and this is with Jesus and Thomas, who's sometimes touted as the doubting, doubting Thomas. So Thomas was one of the followers of Jesus who was with him during his ministry. But when Jesus dies, he essentially says, I'm never going to believe unless I see the mark in his hands and place my finger in there. And I see the mark in his side and I place my finger in his side. I'll, ne- I'll never believe. Even after it's reported that Jesus has risen from the dead and he's walked with Jesus in his ministry and he surely should have known better. But when Jesus approaches Thomas, he says, see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. This is how Jesus approaches his own disciple, his own follower in his doubt. Now, I know we can't physically see Jesus, and Jesus said, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. But the truth is that the same heart that is on display in this story with Gideon, with the story of Jesus uh, and Thomas, is the same heart that God has towards us today. Jesus is the fullest expression, the fullest revelation to us of what the heart of the Father is like. And we see the same thing, this God who condescends to Gideon to strengthen him, as we see Jesus condescending to Thomas to strengthen him. And so, one of the dangers that we can have when we struggle with doubt is to begin to feel like I should move away from God, move away from his word, move away from prayer, move away from community when I'm struggling with doubt. And once I'm out here, I, I can really figure these things out on my own, and then I can reapproach God. But actually, the best place to be with our doubt is in God's presence. Because who, who else can strengthen us? We're, we're not going to work through our doubt on our own. We're, we're not going to strengthen our faith and our own strength. The best place that we can go with our doubt and our fears and our anxieties and our uncertainty, whatever weaknesses we might have, is actually directly into the presence of God. And this is what God offers to us as his people. There's no life outside of him. There's no life figuring things out on our own. But even if we come with weak faith that needs strength, he's able to strengthen us. He was able to strengthen a doubting Gideon. He was able to strengthen a doubting Thomas. He's able to strengthen a doubting you or a doubting me. He's able to strengthen us in whatever weaknesses we might have. Now, at the end of the story, if you're wondering, is Gideon actually a hero? I have good news for you, and that's that Hebrews 11.32, which some call the Hall of Faith, this place that lists all these people who have gone before us in the faith and who are awaiting the promises of God, which find their fulfillment in Jesus, all these people who are living out faith in their time, Gideon is listed as one of those. Hebrews 11.32 says this, And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets. The author of Hebrews is essentially saying, I wish I could tell you. Time would fail me. I wish I could tell you of the great faith of Gideon. Gideon's a flawed character. But he makes it in because of faith. He has faith in a perfect God who is able to save him completely. And for us, we're, we're like Gideon. We're ordinary, flawed People with our own weaknesses. But I want to give an encouragement, and it's this that perhaps the weaknesses that we feel like are such a barrier towards following God, that maybe those weaknesses and areas are where God's grace is going to be put on display most clearly in our lives. Sometimes we think that these areas of weakness, uncertainty, fear, shame, whatever it might be, might be the biggest hindrance. But maybe those are the ways that God's going to show that the power in our salvation does not belong to us but to Him. Why 300 men to show that the power belongs to God? Why might we be content with weakness and challenges in our own lives? Because maybe God's going to show his grace all the more brightly in healing and restoring and changing or in working through us and our weakness. And the good news for us is that today, if we're weak or doubting, we can approach him. In a moment, we're gonna take communion. And communion is a beautiful reminder of the grace of God towards his people and their weakness. As it was read earlier, that God loves us while we're still sinners. At our worst, he came to us so that, he approached us so that if we come to him, we might have everlasting life. That's what communion reminds us of, of the grace of God, the ability he has to strengthen us today in our weaknesses, because Jesus Christ lives forever to lead his people, and he lives now, having offered himself once and for all, having given the perfect sacrifice of himself, he lives now to strengthen us in our time of need. So let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your graciousness. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you that you love us in our weakness you are able to bring us home, you are able to bring us forward. Pray that whatever weakness, whatever shame, whatever issues might be going on in this room, that they would be openly confessed and brought towards the table. They would be openly brought towards you, that we would find strength and help in our time of need. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. If you're helping with communion, uh, you can come forward.